scripture reading this morning will be from Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 34. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And it shall be a statue to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall shall make atonement wearing holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statue forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Have you ever been in a situation where people were speaking the same language as you, but you couldn't understand what they were saying because they were using such a specialized form of jargon? What I mean is, have you ever been in the company of someone who's using language from their specific profession or their specific group of friends, language that is unfamiliar to you? And sitting in on elders' meetings and deacons' meetings over the years, not just here, but, but elsewhere, I've been exposed to what is commonly referred, referred to as corporate speak. And they didn't train us for this in, in, in Bible school. They didn't train us for this in our, uh, uh, during our Bible degrees in college. We didn't learn what low-hanging fruit meant. We didn't learn what let's table this or let's take this offline meant. They didn't think it was important for ministers to come to an understanding of what um, core competencies are or what it means to synergize. All these terms that corporations love to utilize, these buzzwords. But then I also am married to someone who received a education degree, who became a teacher. And now I've been exposed to education jargon. And there are these words that get thrown around my house, words that I hear Sarah communicating with other teacher friends, and I have no clue what she's saying. But some of you who are in education might be familiar with these terms, like an IEP, EIP, ESOL, COGAT, 504, or SST meeting. I mean, I don't know what's going on, but there's letters flying all over the place in my house. But there is a conversation I can be a part of. Maybe some of you can relate to those who have husbands in particular involved in fantasy football. And you might hear them throwing around language that doesn't make any sense to you either. Maybe you hear them saying things like a keeper league or a snake draft or a flex or super flex position, 
or even PPR, and you're wondering what in the world these guys are talking about. You see, we've all somewhere, somehow been exposed to jargon that we don't understand. Just spend some time around a lawyer, and you'll get exposed to legalese. Spend time with a doctor, and you're going to be exposed to medicalese. And spend time with a Christian, and you're going to be exposed to Christianese. You see, even within the church, we have our own unique jargon. We have these terms that we use in church context, whether it's a Bible study, a sermon, or a spiritual conversation. We have these terms that get used in this context, but rarely, if ever, get used in the public sphere. And that's not a bad thing. It is not wrong for any group or any, for any people, any community, to utilize specialized jargon. Nothing is wrong with that. But when you have a message that's meant to impact lives for their eternity, a message that is meant to be shared with the whole world, you better make sure they can understand the terms you're using. And so here's what I want to do for the next few weeks, or actually for our remaining Sundays this year. I want to engage in a study of what I call church words. Well, I don't know what screen that's on. Um, A study of church words. Now, we did something very similar to this a couple of years ago in a Ministers of the Roundtable session on a Sunday night. Can we go back to the uh, title screen, please? On a Sunday night, we had some of the retired ministers among us do a study of certain church words. And I want to build upon that, even address some of the words that would have been... I think my slideshow is out of order. Even build upon some words that we studied on that occasion. And I want us to spend some time with these terms... Because we need to understand what they mean. We need to appreciate them. We need to investigate, dissect, define, expound upon, and apply each of these words so they make sense for our lives as well as our ability to communicate them to others. So, buckle in, because we're about to navigate some deep, practical theology over the next several weeks. And I'm going to love this because these are words that are so powerful and so beautiful and so amazing. And yet we don't fully appreciate their meaning sometimes. But yet these words speak to what God is doing in our lives. And these words speak to the gift of salvation he has bestowed upon us. So let's appreciate and understand these words. And I want to start with the word atonement. We'll get there. (laughs) The Hebrew term translated as atonement, it appears 103 times in 94 verses, all of which are in the Old Testament. That's what's fascinating to me. Atonement is this powerful theological term, but in reality, it's only an Old Testament term. Now, your NIV Bible will try to insert atonement into the New Testament on a couple of, uh, on a four occasions. But in each instance, it's substituting the word atonement 
for another term that we'll be uh, dealing with later in this series. Maybe it's going to be the term propitiation or the term reconciliation. Atonement is related to those terms, but the Greek word being utilized in those passages is not the same as atonement. So atonement really only appears in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word translated as atonement at its core means to cover over something. That's what's interesting about this word. It's really a word about covering. And this is evident when you start looking at how this term is used throughout the Bible. For instance, atonement was associated with the pitch that covered the exterior of Noah's Ark in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14. If you go to that passage in Genesis chapter 6, here's what you will read. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Those are the directives of God to Noah. But nowhere in that verse do you see the word atonement. It it doesn't appear, at least not in English. But in Hebrew, that word translated cover is the word atonement. And the idea here is that this pitch would cover the exterior of the ark. It would seal the wood so that no water could gain entry into the ark and threaten its ability to float. That covering of pitch was a life-saving mechanism. It prevented the floodwaters from capsizing the ark. If you continue journeying through the Old Testament and looking at the use of the word atonement, you'll next come to the story of Jacob and Esau being reunited. And in this passage, atonement was associated with Jacob's effort to appease Esau's anger. Jacob was preparing to encounter Esau for the first time since he stole his blessing. When he departed from the family... Esau wanted Jacob dead. Jacob can only assume that that anger, that resentment, that bitterness, that desire for his demise still existed within his brother. And so if you look at Exodus, excuse me, Genesis chapter 32, you'll see that Jacob takes some steps to prepare a gift that would precede him to Esau. And the idea Jacob had by sending those gifts on ahead of himself to Esau was that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. Once again, the word atonement doesn't appear, but that word translated appease is the same word for atonement. And the idea here is that Jacob hopes his gifts to Esau will cover Esau's anger, and thereby save Jacob's life from his vindictive desires. Atonement is a covering. And what's interesting is when God starts employing the word atonement in his messages to the Israelites, one of the very first occasions that takes place is in conjunction with something that God himself refers to as a ransom. It's in Exodus chapter 30, where God gave instructions to Moses regarding a tax, uh, what we could only call 
a census tax. And it was necessary, to use the language of the text, it was necessary to make atonement for Israel's sins. This so-called tax, which in the text it never is called a tax. In fact, in the text it's called the Lord's offering or the atonement money. This tax was collected whenever a census was taken. And every individual who was numbered in the census had to give this tax. And they did so as an offering to the Lord, which would be given for the service of the tabernacle. So the funds collected here were utilized for the benefit of the tabernacle and or temple. And God declared that this tax was a ransom for each individual's life in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 30. And the reason they had to give this tax, God explained, was so that there would be no plague among them. They, every time a census was taken, they had to give money for the work of the tabernacle to prevent plagues. Now, this instruction is given to those Israelites as they are wandering from Egypt to the promised land. They've seen what God can do with plagues. They know that survival depends on avoiding those plagues. And so God is instructing them for their atonement to give this money as an offering to him and thereby avoid those life-endangering plagues. So not only is atonement associated with pitch on an ark and appeasement of anger, it's also associated with a ransom payment for survival. And in the Old Testament, atonement was also associated with cleansing, particularly in the text we're going to look at of a leper. If one was deemed unclean due to leprosy, the process of being pronounced clean involved atonement. According to Leviticus chapter 14, verses 10 through 20, the individual who had leprosy would come to the tabernacle bringing two male lambs, a grain offering, and a certain amount of oil. A priest would then sacrifice one of the lambs and cover the leper's right earlobe, right thumb, and right big toe with some of that blood. And then he would take, the priest would take that oil. And that oil, would, he would do the same thing, cover the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of that individual seeking to be pronounced clean. And then some of that oil would be smeared on the head, covering the head of the former leper. Then the lambs and the grain offering would be sacrificed to God, and as a result of those unique steps, Leviticus chapter 14 and verse 20 says that the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. It's through that process of atonement that cleansing occurs. So a leper had to be covered by blood and oil from a sacrifice in order to be pronounced clean. And that pronouncement of clean, that pronouncement of clean was a life saver. Because only then could they return home. Only then could they return to work. Only then could they return to the tabernacle or the temple to worship God. Based on these references that we have run through this morning, 
it's apparent that the overarching idea behind the Hebrew term for atonement is covering something for the purpose of saving it. And that is especially the case when we consider the most prevalent reference to atonement in the Bible. And that reference is to a feast, to a holy day known as Yom Kippur. But you might know it better as the Day of Atonement. This title is given to this day in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27 through 28, where the Lord said via Moses, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and Present a food offering to the Lord, and you shall not do any work on that very day. For it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Now this day, this feast, this holy occasion was the fourth of the five annual feasts prescribed by Mosaic law. And this, it was determined to be the holiest day in the Jewish faith. Because it was this day, on this day, when Israel's sins were collectively covered, resulting in the association of this term with forgiveness. See, atonement is not just about pitch. It's not just about appeasement. It's not just about ransom or cleansing It's ultimately about forgiveness. See, the activities associated with the Day of Atonement, they are outlined in Leviticus chapter 16. And that word atonement appears 16 times over the course of 13 verses in that chapter. And while there's a lot that could be said about the Day of Atonement and the details provided about it in Leviticus chapter 16, I just want to emphasize one aspect of this day. And that aspect has to do with a couple of goats. So look at Leviticus chapter 16, verses 7 through 10. There we are told that the high priest was instructed to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall then bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Let's break that down. This Lord's goat, the one, the one whose lot falls to the Lord, that goat was sacrificed as a sin offering. Its blood was used to purify the tabernacle as well as the furnishings of the tabernacle. In other words, its blood went inside and was sprinkled on the mercy seat. It, was, it covered the horns of the altar of incense and, and uh, the other uh, pieces of furniture in there as well. It was utilized, that blood was utilized to make the temple clean because the, temp- the tabernacle's very presence among the people compromised it. It had been polluted, we're told in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 16. It had been polluted by the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. That's what sin does. 
Sin pollutes. Sin taints. Sin compromises. And think about this. From God's perspective, the Israelite's sin was so great, so pervasive, that it polluted his dwelling place. It polluted the very uh, structure with w- in which his presence was manifested among them. And so he had to order a sacrifice just to purify that structure. That was the first goat. The second goat then came into play, but this goat wasn't slaughtered. That second goat was presented alive before the Lord, and it came to be known as the scapegoat. Now that's terminology, that's jargon that most of us are familiar with because we use that language of scapegoat in our own society, in our own culture. A a scapegoat to us is one that bears the blame for the wrongdoings, the mistakes, or the faults of others. And individuals like Marie Antoinette, Rasputin, Yoko Ono, Bill Buckner, and Steve Bartman have all had the label of scapegoat attached to them. And the job of the scapegoat was not glamorous. It was brought to the entrance of the tabernacle where according to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 21, the high priest was instructed to lay both hands on the head of that goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And then this goat was escorted into the wilderness and released so that it could carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. So the responsibility for bearing Israel's sins was transferred onto the scapegoat who was then sent into the wilderness to symbolically remove their sins so they could continue to reside in the presence of God. So on the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat bore the sins of God's people. After those sins were transferred onto it through the covering of its head by the hands of the priest and a confession of those sins. And then that scapegoat, that scapegoat covered Israel's sins by taking the punishment on itself. Because that scapegoat had to go live in exile. That scapegoat had to go endure eternal Separation, because that's what sin does. And if your sins don't get manifested onto a scapegoat, then that consequence becomes yours. That's the beauty of atonement, because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I. We need to understand the scapegoat's function because it's essential for us to understand the function of Christ. See, in order to atone for our sins, Jesus had to become our scapegoat. Now, that term, scapegoat, nor that term, atonement, 
appears in the New Testament. But if you look at what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he said, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the definition of scapegoatism. Jesus, who never committed a sin, assumed responsibility for our sins. He bore the blame for our sins so that in return we could be viewed as righteous in the eyes of God. Jesus became our scapegoat. And in so doing, he covered us in righteousness so that on the day of judgment, we can stand before God and hear the words, well done, even though that's not what we deserve to hear. And so atonement speaks to the very act of Jesus Christ on the cross and what he accomplished in bearing our sins in his own body, as Peter would say. But I don't want to just end here. I want to talk about atonement for just a minute longer. Because there's three truths about atonement that all of us need to know. Number one, we need to realize that atonement is universal. See, the atoning work of Yom Kippur was only applicable to the people of Israel. When the high priest placed his hands on the head of the scapegoat, he confessed all the sins, all the transgressions, all the iniquities of the people of Israel, not the whole world. When the scapegoat exited the camp, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 22 says it, it shall bear all their iniquities. That plural pronoun there is not a reference to the whole world, but solely to the congregation of the people of Israel from whom the goat had been taken back in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 5. And when God declared this to be an annual observance, In verse 34 of Leviticus chapter 16, he referred to it as a statute forever for the people of Israel. You see, atonement under these conditions had limited application to those who were numbered with the Israelites. But when Christ assumed the scapegoat role, he did so for the whole world. He made atonement universal. We can see this in the New Testament. When John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not the sin of some, not the sin of a select few, not not the sin of just those who are Christians, but the sin of the whole world. Atonement is universal. Paul said in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, he said that God desires all, all people to be saved. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, he said that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. These aren't terms referring to a select group. These are universal in their application. And in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, John referred to Jesus as the propitiation. That's a word we'll cover in this series. The propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, who is John referring to when he says our? He's referring to Christians. He's referring to the church. He's referring to those who have fellowship with Christ, as he's been writing about in the, this letter. 
So what John is saying is that Jesus died not just for the sins of those who find forgiveness for their sins, but also for every single person who failed to find forgiveness for their sins through his sacrifice. Why? Because God so loved the world. The death of Jesus Christ wasn't just for a small group. It was for everyone. The atoning work of Christ has impact for everyone because God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus' death has power to affect every life for forgiveness. That means that it's not limited or particular. It's universal. But we also need to realize that atonement is perpetual. The problem with the Day of Atonement is that it was only good for one year. Every year on the tenth day of the seventh month, this ritual had to be performed again. At the conclusion of Leviticus chapter 16, God announced that the Day of Atonement would be a lasting ordinance for Israel and that atonement would have to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So every year there was a new scapegoat. Every year their sins had to be transferred. Every year their sins had to be escorted out of the camp. Every year they had to spend the day going through this process all over again. But when Christ assumed the scapegoat role, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 25 tells us that he did not and does not have to do it every year like on the Day of Atonement. Instead, he did it once for all time to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That means that when he bore our sins in his body on the tree, he did so in perpetuity. Instead of having to seek atonement year after year, we only have to seek it once through the blood of Jesus Christ because it has eternal effect. And one last thing I want you to know about atonement. I want you to know that it's available. Speaking of the 10th day of the 7th month, that's when atonement was available. That's when their sins were were transferred onto the scapegoat and subsequently removed from them. So under Mosaic law, atonement was to some degree available only once a year. But when Christ assumed the scapegoat role, he made atonement available all the time. Forgiveness of sins occurs whenever one decides to repent and be baptized, just as Peter instructed the first Christians to do in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. That means you don't have to wait for a special day to have your sins forgiven. You don't have to wait for that day to come around once a year. That means right here, right now, atonement is available for you if you haven't already received it. So the question for us, is the same question that Ananias posed to Saul in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, because he has already paid the price for you. He has already removed your sins by becoming your scapegoat. But the power of his atonement does not get applied to your life 
until you respond in faith and obedience. So why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins today. If you have need to respond to that invitation or if you have any other needs that we can help you with, we encourage you to come while we stand and while we sing. Sing thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me ever to adore thee. May I still thy goodness prove, while the hope of endless glory fills my QR code with your phone. Um, thanks for being here this morning. Invite everyone back tonight for 6 at 6 p.m. for evening worship. Uh, we're going to be closed out in a prayer, but before uh, we are, let's sing uh, Victory in Jesus, 717, Victory in Jesus. <laughs> 